You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey, everybody. Uh, So for this week, I have a simple tale of a not-so-simple plant. And uh, strangely... uh, this plant is most often found growing in places that are not the best growing conditions, but rather the worst for other plants. And mm. we actually see this a lot in nature. It's yeah. like any plant, any plant can grow in perfect, lovely conditions, right? Right. But if you're in a really good, lovely spot, there's a lot of competition, you know, for those lovely, perfect spots. So mm-hmm. what about the less than perfect spots? And you may not grow quite as well in one of those less than perfect spots. But if there's less competition, then you can actually thrive. Mm -hmm. So this week I'm talking about a plant called, uh, now I get to say our our favorite part is when we try to say these scientific (laughs) names. It's a Brassica oleracea. All right. Brassica. Wait, say it again. Oleracea. Yeah. Brassica oleracea. Yeah. Okay. So it can grow under a number of conditions. Um, but it has a weakness. Does it doesn't it? like competition. Okay. Right? Like we talked about. Mm-hmm. So you could grow it in a beautiful, lovely, you know, growing conditions, but pretty much everything else can also grow in these conditions too. So there's just too much competition for this plant. Right. And it has a secret weapon though. Does it? Uh, it is highly resistant to salt and lime. Lime. And those are two things that a lot of plants don't really like. Yeah. Right? yeah. Um, and those are both common on limestone cliffs near the sea. And that's where we find this plant growing in the wild. So it grows in a number of places. But the one I was able to find sort of most commonly cited is that it grows along the limestone cliffs on both sides of the English Channel. Okay. So okay. if you can kind of picture, uh, you know, like the, the big white cliffs and everything, that's where you'd find yeah. this plant. Right. And scientists who studied wild populations, though, have noticed something about the genetics of this plant. Um they're a bit sus. Oh, are say. they? Are um, they? Are you it, getting oh, with the youths you there, Kirk? It seems like uh, they like may not. Well, like there may not really be any truly wild examples of this plant left in the wild. Uh, because okay. what is found in the wild uh, is actually probably more appropriately, appropriately called a feral plant rather than a oh, wild plant. Okay. You uh, see, like, like this the is a plant. This is a plant that has been cultivated by humans for thousands of years. And the earliest evidence for the cultivation of this plant goes back to about 2000 BCE. Whoa. So, yeah, yeah, pretty far back, uh, about 4,000 years. So one of the older names for this member uh, of this plant, which, by the way, is a member of the mustard family. It's not mustard like we would... uh, you know, right. yellow stuff comes in a tube. But there's that whole plant of uh, family of plants. Yeah. And um, this plant, um, it, it's, well, it had a name. People called it coal wart. Coal wart? And I know that, that doesn't sound real tasty, 
Like, you know, want some cold wart for dinner? Okay, uh, so but, any examples? But Kirk, like lumberjacks yeah. used to drink something called dishwasher, dishwater with sand. Like, who knows? Right, you know, <laughs> yeah. So maybe you know if that's what you grew up with, it would seem totally normal. Um, but examples in the wild are, are like the descendants of these long since forgotten, like gardens that were cultivated. So mm-hmm. possibly even hundreds or thousands of years ago. So colewort was cultivated and grown from wild plants thousands of years ago. But you may not realize it, it's still cultivated today. And you might be thinking, hold on, I've never eaten colewort, uh, but I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure, sure everyone listening yeah. actually has. Yeah. yeah. Um, so today we call it kale. So the, the kale we have today is a descendant of the original wild plants. Okay. And uh, they're uh-huh. not a new species, mind you. The kale we eat today is just a cultivar or a variety of Brassica oleracea. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's dozens of varieties of kale, and they're all because farmers decided to focus on growing plants with like the biggest and tastiest leaves right. of this wild, you know, coal mm-hmm. that they were finding. Right. But something really interesting happened early on, pretty early on in cultivation. Some farmers decided to focus on really developing the terminal leaf buds mm-hmm. and trying to see how big they could get those instead of the leaves. And it turns out, you can get them to be pretty big. Yeah, you can. And we end up with a plant called cabbage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, so we do. So cabbage is the same plant as kale. Uh, and cabbage goes back at least a thousand uh, to at least a thousand BCE. So 3000 years ago. Mm-hmm. And people have gotten a little carried away. People have gotten uh, with very excited. This plant. <laughs> There's currently over 400 varieties of cabbage grown in the world. That's and they all came from insane. this one just plant. cabbage, not including the kale varieties. Right. Just just, just the cabbages cabbage. alone. There's 400 of those. And then there's, obviously there's many, many varieties of kale. So it's pretty wild. Uh, it seems like you can pretty much get every color of the rainbow that you would like out of this plant. So about 2000 years ago, we find another variety of this plant showing up and it looks a bit like kale. But these leaves are smoother and taste different. And mm. it turns out it grows in more places as well. And you've probably heard of them. We also get collard greens. So <laughs> co- collard greens are technically the same plant as cabbage and kale. Yep. In fact, they believe the word collards actually harkens back to that original name for the plant, colwort. And they're kind of a, a similar sounding word. That's okay. probably just kale. Yeah, probably. Uh, so... We got kale and collards by focusing on the leaves Mm -hmm. and cabbage by breeding for the terminal leaf bud. Mm -hmm. People were wondering, huh, what else can we do with this plant? Well, it turns out (laughs) a lot. Uh, In the 1200s, farmers were looking at the lateral leaf bud Mm -hmm. as opposed to the terminal leaf bud. So lateral leaf buds are the ones on the side as opposed to the one up on top. And they're thinking, hey, I bet we could mess with those. (laughs) So this seems fun. After lots of selective breeding, uh, they came up with a variety of brassica with tall, with a tall, thick stem and giant, tightly packed leaf bloods, buds growing up the side. Mm-hmm. And we know those leaf buds today as Brussels sprouts. Brussels sprouts. That's right. The same plant. It's the same plant, everybody. So, you know, not to be outdone there, in the 1500s, farmers decided. They wanted to focus on the flowers yeah, instead the flowers of the leaves. Yeah, the flowers are feeling so left already, out here. Yeah, we already been messing with everything else. How about those flowers? So they just, they selectively bred 
kale with a huge flower buds and created a plant we today call broccoli. Broccoli. So, yep, broccoli is also the exact same plant. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, incidentally, there are many kinds of broccoli out there. I, I couldn't find good data on like how many varieties have been created, but my absolute favorite is the Romanesco broccoli. Oh yeah, that's before? so cool. I don't think so I have, yeah. It's the 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 flower heads, instead of being like the little miniature trees that we think about, mm-hmm. um, they actually grow in fractal self-repeating spirals. Oh, that's cool. Uh, it is utterly bizarre and really beautiful. It's so bizarre. It was actually used in Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, it's one of the strange looking <laughs> foods served at Maz's castle. Really carefully, they've taken like an apple and cut it in half and co- like completely scooped it out. So it's the shell of an apple and they shoved like some Romanesco broccoli and some other little like like sprigs of uh, plants in there. And that was like this exotic alien food. No, it's just one more version of this <laughs> wild plant. That's so awesome. back to Brassica. Um, it, this tinkering wasn't just going on in Europe. This little plant had by now spread around the world and people kept on breeding new varieties. So we're not exactly sure when, uh, but farmers in Southeast Asia began to experiment with it and focused on making the stem big and bulbous. And we ended up with kohlrabi, mm-hmm. which is also the same <laughs> plant. Um, we know we're it was likely five. sometime before, before the 1500s because that's when authors in Italy first noted hearing about it. So it obviously happened before that. Mm-hmm. Okay, so to recap thus far, we have a wild mustard plant that's been turned into kale, collards, cabbage, Brussels sprouts, kohlrabi, and broccoli. That's six. So it's like s- six of the major vegetables we eat are actually all the same plant. That's but nuts. why stop there? Right. Why would you One stop of those there? Hu- Right. One of those hundreds of broccoli varieties was further selectively bred to create the nearly pointless plant, cauliflower. cauliflower. Hey, now, I, personally, I like cauliflower. I personally think, well, I, I think we got a bit too far with that one, but to each their own. <laughs> I understand some people, apparently like Victoria, I don't even mind, find it edible. I don't mind cauliflower. <sighs> it's, Especially if it's, you drown it in cheese. Well, then just have the cheese. <laughs> right. All right, anyways, uh, there's even more varieties to this pr- plant that have been made up now, like broccolini and broccoflower and, and all these weird sort of niche ones. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've sort of, I feel like we've maybe maxed out what this plant can do. I can't uh, think of any it's, other it's, parts. What about right. the root? Have we, the yeah, roots. the roots. Yeah, we do, we do something with the roots. That Maybe that'll be the next thing people will uh, start working on. I guess. It's got to be one of the strangest and most heavily selectively bred plants on earth in terms of the the variety of end product that we've gotten out of it as far as veg that we eat. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can't think of any other species that we've, as humans, have done more uh, with all the parts of the plant to like selectively breed for those to make it uh, into something that most people would consider different plants. Yeah, and you don't think they're not. the same. Yeah. <laughs> they're all the same plants, uh, just different varieties. So oh. very cool. I just, uh, I was, you know, I was munching down on some Brussels sprouts and I was like, you know, I think it's time we talked about this on the show. <laughs> I mean, you can wind up with something Kirk likes, like Brussels sprouts and something Kirk right. really doesn't like, like cauliflower. There you pointless. go. Pointless. <laughs> Utterly pointless. All right. Uh, Wonderful. Well, that's what I have. Uh, tell you what, we're going to take a quick break and then when we come back, uh, it'll be Rachel's turn to regale us with her story. He 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 he. 
Strange by Nature podcast is brought to you by listeners like you who have joined the Society of Strange, our membership group on over at patreon.com slash strangebynature. Society of Strange members can join at one of three different membership levels and help support the show and also get some fun stuff like water bottle stickers or access to a super secret content. So a thank you to those who have joined already to help make this podcast possible. If you haven't joined yet, we'll see you soon over at the Society of Strange at patreon.com slash strangebynature. See you soon. Welcome back, everyone. Um, so what do you both know about particle accelerators? Yes. Oh, my. I, mean, <laughs> I, I know. I'm, I'm a pretty big nerd. I, I know the basics. I, but yeah. My uncle actually is uh, now retired high energy physicist who worked at various particle accelerators over the decades. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, so obviously there's a couple famous ones, um, notably like the Hadron Collider is one of them. Um, uh, the particle accelerator that I want to talk about today is the National Accelerator Laboratory and it's now called Fermilab and it's located ooh. in Illinois. Yeah, yeah. Fermilab. <laughs> yeah, yes, Fermilab. Yeah. Um, and... I want to talk about the beginning of this particle accelerator, okay? Because okay. Um, there's a few things that happened. So, notably, they got... This is in the middle of the space race. This is the late 1960s. Um, they go about and they want to build this four-mile looped particle accelerator. Uh, they get money from, from Congress. It was $250 million dollars. And that was their budget, and they had to do it within five years, okay? Oh, jeez. Yeah, that's, it was... That's not a lot of time. It was not a lot of time. It Although was it was a lot more money back then. There, there yeah. was. That was $250 million in 1960s time was no laughing matter. Um, but you throw still, enough money at something, you can do it a lot faster. Yeah. It's pretty tight, you know? Um so, and they had to make sure that everything ran on time, too. They ha couldn't have any delays. Um, they did end up finishing this accelerator on time uh, and within budget by 1971. Okay? Wow. <laughs> I don't know how, but they did. Um, but when they, they turned it on, they were able to get the particles going. But once they were above, tried to get above... Um, couldn't quite tell what the units were. They couldn't get the speed up past 70 uh, BEV. I'm not sure what that stands for. I tried to look and I couldn't find it. Um, probably like billion electron volts or something like that. Probably, yeah. They tried to get it above like, like 70. That seemed like a lot. It, it, it is. Okay. Um, they tried to get the speed up past that. The accelerator would fail. And... They didn't know what the problem was. They, they wouldn't continue in that loop, okay? Um, which is a problem since, you know, that's the whole point of the accelerator, right? Um, right, it's to accelerate the... The particles. <laughs> um, particles very quickly, yeah. Um, so they went through and they tried to figure out what could be going wrong. So what do you think could be going wrong? 
There was a rat nesting somewhere in the tunnel. There was a vibration. Those are very different answers. <laughs> they are very different answers. Uh, there was not a rat nesting in the tunnel. Dude, it's all, um, sometimes it's weird things like that. So, so, um, they ha- so earlier in the project, um, after being used after a few months, they had to replace some of the magnets because the magnets would shut down. These are like super serious magnets, like several ton magnets to get the particles going. Um, so they had to cut the tube and when they cut the tube, they accidentally left some metal slivers behind. So what would happen is they would get up, start getting up to speed when the magnets would get powering uh, there. When the magnets powering the accelerator sped up too much, the slivers would attach themselves to the walls and knock into the particles and it would cause it to fail. Okay. Oh wow. So my answer was closer. In other words, your your answer was closer. I mean, a rat might do the same thing, (laughs) although it wouldn't be magnetized. I'm gonna hold on to the rat thing for just a moment more. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Because okay, this is a four mile long collider in a loop. Uh, There's a way to like get into it to loop it around to like be able to clean it but how how to go about it is the problem enter how to go about cleaning it how to go about cleaning to get the metal it. fragments out yeah In oh words, okay i got gotcha. you to get the metal fragments out that is problematic yeah enter bob sheldon bob, bob sheldon? sheldon bob sheldon okay uh, he was I an think engineer I know <laughs> Uh, a project fixer. Uh, he he was an engineer, but he was the person who was in charge of looking for solutions um, f- and trying to make things as cheap as possible. If there was an issue, like get the problem to go away as quickly as possible with costing the least amount of money. So if there was like a delivery delay or they couldn't get a uh, material in time he would find a cheaper or easier solution okay so of course everyone is like oh we'll go to bob now bob is from the uk and he came up with a solution because in in the uk he was a hunter and things too uh and what they do is they send ferrets down uh rabbit holes <laughs> to <Yep>. flush out <laughs> rabbits So, you know, why would it not work for flushing out whatever it is, be it metal slivers or anything else in the tunnel? So his solution was to send his his solution. Well, ferret hair is not magnetic. No, it's not. Was to send a ferret, which they named Felicia, uh, down the tunnel with cleaning tools uh, attached down the tube. So there was like I love that. She had like a little brush tutu, tutu basically. Yeah. We had the same thought, Kirk. Sort of, yeah. It sounds so cute. <laughs> uh, I've seen pictures of Felicia. She was very cute. Or maybe like a rough, like you were talking about, uh, like a neck rough. Oh, that would be you good. Know, like you're referring to, yeah, like uh, those Elizabethan that... collars, sort of yeah. the variation. Mm-hmm. That, uh, animals wear. Cone of shame. 
Oh. Oh. He was a hero. Well, or she's a hero. That would be great, except for the fact that this is a tennis ball-sized sh- tube. So if you put a ruff around her neck or anything, you're not going to be able to get through. So um, well, what if they it was exactly do, the size of the tube and f- real fluffy. Ooh, that would be good. Yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking of. Uh, so what they did do was they did make her a special collar, but they attached a string uh, to drag a metal cleanser swab around behind her for uh, oh, cleaning okay. this That's uh, probably better. tube. Now, here's the thing. I know you're wondering, or at least our listeners are probably wondering, what if she poops? <laughs> that would be That's an issue. That's not what I was thinking, but it's a good question. <laughs> what I would mean, you do if a ferret pooped in your collider, right? Put a, put a diaper on her. That yeah. is what they did, yeah. They put her in there a diaper. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Uh, so they got Felicia, fun fact, they got Felicia for $35 from a farm in Minnesota. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, and they brought her in, trained her a little bit. But you know what? Felicia just did not want to go down this tube. <laughs> I don't know why don't she know wouldn't want to go down this four-mile tube. Um, <laughs> so this was the main ring. Um, uh, particle accelerators are generally made out of several different rings. So there was a part that was still under construction that wasn't the main ring, but it was in 300 okay. foot sections. So what they did, mm-hmm. w- uh, since this was the vacuum tube, they had her go through those cause she eventually was comfortable going through those. And, and I'm assuming getting a treat at the end. Oh, 100%. Working up to it, basically. Yeah. Working up to it. And they eventually got her to go through. And it took her a couple hours to go through these 300-foot tubes because, I mean, they are ferrets. Oh but I would get ex- I would get very uh, <sighs> just so tired and claustrophobic going through oh, this tired, tube. Yeah. <laughs> um, but she did eventually emerge, and she was tired but healthy. Um, so she did this with... Um, just about all of the uh, vacuum tubes that were around. And of course she was doted on by all the physicists and everybody who worked at the lab. Um, They never did though, put her in the four mile long main ring. Um, Another engineer came up with a mechanical version uh, called a magnetic (laughs) ferret uh, for the main (laughs) ring (laughs) that was more or less, um, a it was a bunch of magnets held together uh pulled along a steel cable pushed in by with uh compressed air to pick up the debris as best as it could through the main tube and eventually they did figure out that one of the issues was the stability of the orbit of the particles which also caused them to crash into the wall um so it was a couple different things but uh this uh, this accelerator had a ferret running through its tubes for a while. Uh, she went on to be retired, and she was the lab mascot. Unfortunately, Felicia did die in 1972, but she was very what much doted upon by everyone who was there. So, Aww. oh man, I yeah. think that was just slightly before maybe that was right around the time when I think my uncle started working at Fermi Lab. I'll have to oh ask him gosh. if he you knew Felicia. You will have to ask. Oh, please. <laughs> please do. 
Uh, well, that's what I have for you both today. Cool. Uh, and I, I just for our for our listeners and for our own edification, I did look it up. MEV, the unit of measure. I was, I guessed it was mil, like you know, uh, like million electron volts. I was close. It's mega electron volts. Uh, and to give you an idea, like we've gone beyond there now because they're now measuring them in. Uh, either, you know, you got giga electron volts mm-hmm. and then tera electron volts and peta electron, right. electron volts and now exa electron volts. Oh, my so good. We've gone, we've gone a bit higher Just <laughs> in a power little. since then, but still very cool what they were able to, to uh, accomplish. Yeah, it's very awesome. All right. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, it'll be Victoria. Hey, we're back for our final segment this evening. I have just a, a light, inconsequential kind of topic to cover. How okay. did how did life on this planet begin? Oh, good. Oh, real light. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. That's not an existential crisis waiting at all, Victoria. Let me just check my watch. We got uh, eight hours left in the show. Go for it. Yeah, yep. yeah. Um, this is going to be well. So just a just a sneak preview. This is. A topic I chose because I saw a cool article about some recent science. And I was like, oh, this will be fun. And then I realized getting into it that I had to go over the origin some of life on Earth. So. <laughs> I, I think I saw that same article. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to what you did. talked about next week. <laughs> yeah. um, no, I, no, I'm just doing, I'm, I'm doing that topic this week, but I'll oh. get to it after I, okay. yeah. Um, anyway, we can't really know how life began on this planet for sure, since the answer is more than three and a half billion years in the past. Yeah, yep. that's a little Still hard. Still on that time machine. Yeah. But to start off with uh, just a little timeline orientation here, the Earth was formed uh, about 4.6 billion years ago. And the first billion years of its existence or so was characterized by near constant bombardment with large asteroids, mm-hmm. which, you know, kind of a bummer. Yeah. yeah. Not, not an environment super conducive to life on the surface. Not really. Um, yeah. Eventually around 3.8 billion years ago, the period that was known as the late heavy bombardment, which I just love, I love that. <laughs> ended. <laughs> so, yeah. At that point, collisions became less frequent. And, you know, there's some evidence, some fossil evidence that life may actually have begun as early as 4.28 billion years ago. So before the end of the late heavy bombardment. Um, But this would have been potentially in hydrothermal vents, which Mm -hmm. call back way back to an episode where I talked about life at hydrothermal vents. Mm -hmm. Um, But the idea is these are protected from surface bombardment and not dependent on the sun's energy. So, you know, possible candidate there. There's some disagreement, but kind of the earliest fossils that everyone seems to agree on are from about 3.5 billion years ago. And they're called stromatolites. Yeah. 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 Super cool. They're sedimentary formations that have striped layers that paleontologists have determined were created by multiple layers of cyanobacteria that live in the ocean. And the reason they know is because these are still being made today. Mm -hmm. There are places on Earth where you can go and look at current stromatolites, not fossil stromatolites. 
Yeah. Yeah, I've got a stromatolite sitting around here somewhere. Yeah, I I saw Kirk moving around. <laughs> Seems like the kind of thing I just Kirk have, of has course. One. Yeah. It's from up in the part of the world where Rachel now uh, resides. Yes. I think I had one at one point. I'll let you know if I find any more. Some very old rocks up there in the Canadian Shield. Uh, anyway, we do know that life started, obviously, and we know approximately when, but there's still a huge amount of debate about how that happened. And part of the problem is that there are a lot of different molecules that need to form to create life as we know it. And some of the most important are DNA and RNA, which you probably know carry genetic information in all life forms on Earth. Right. Pretty uh, important. Yes. And so each molecule of DNA or RNA is a long chain. It's the famous double helix that you've probably heard of. And each unit in the chain is called a nucleotide. Mm-hmm. And each nucleotide uh, consists of sort of Three main parts. One is called one is a sugar, and one is a phosphate, and one is called a nucleobase, which is yes. a nitrogen-containing compound, and it comes in five different flavors. Mm. What, yes, five yeah. flavors. I five. just remember yes. four. Well, oh, wait, DNA because right, RNA. Yes, yes, yes. I'm with yes. you. DNA has four types: adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. But we're just gonna get cozy with them and call them A, G, C, and T. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. Yes. <laughs> hey. Uh, and RNA has most of the same ones, except that thymine is replaced by uracil. So T becomes a U. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Bringing back all and my biology class. Yes. I had to, I had to relearn all this stuff recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, all those four or five nucleotides in different combinations create the genetic codes of every single living thing on this planet. Mm -hmm. Now, DNA seems like a horribly complicated molecule to try to construct without an organism there that has the cellular equipment to construct it. Like, Mm -hmm. how would it even begin? Right. And to try to answer this question, we have to take another step back and talk about where the elements come from, which is uh, stars. All elements except hydrogen and helium are formed by fusion within stars. And then okay, yeah. they kind of make their way out to other parts of the universe, the solar systems. And uh, then with the addition of energy, carbon and hydrogen can join and make organic molecules along with other elements. Um, you do need a source of energy for this, but it could come from different sources. So it could come from UV radiation. It could come from impacts like meteorite impacts. It could come from lightning or other electrical discharges as some examples. Mm-hmm. And some of these conditions could have occurred on early Earth, but they are definitely happening out in space. There's a lot of energy out in space and there are um, elements out there. And it's been known since the late 1960s that in fact, meteorites can harbor amino acids, which are the building blocks for proteins. And mm-hmm. around the same time in the late 60s, it was discovered that the nucleobases, not the whole nucleotides, but nucleobases A and G were also found in meteorites. Huh. Very cool. That's yeah, so that's sweet. been known for a while. But the recent discovery that prompted me to pick, pick this topic was that scientists believe that they have now discovered all of the other remaining nucleobases in meteorites. So 
all five of them have now arguably been shown to be present in space. Wow. And, and in addition, um, ribose, which is a sugar that's needed for DNA construction, has also been found in meteorites. So, so you're that's getting sweet. like a lot. Well, sugar is sweet. <laughs> oh. oh boy that, that was good solid victoria i like it yeah <laughs> um so you know in one sense all of the stories about aliens being the p- possible source of life on earth could be kind of true mm-hmm. um sure there's a bit a bit of a caveat here which right. is the, the technique that was used to show these recent discoveries. It was basically doing an extremely delicate chemical analysis of material from meteorites that have fallen to Earth, right? And they have fallen to Earth in the key phrase. They have fallen to Earth, yes, exactly. Ah, yeah. So it's this very sensitive chemical analysis, and then <clears throat> they're comparing material found on the meteorite versus material that's in the soil near the meteorite mm-hmm. okay and comparing the abundance of different compounds in those two samples and okay. so for example if if you uracil showed up in greater abundance in the meteorite sample than the soil sample they concluded that it came with the meteorite and wasn't mm-hmm. somehow contaminated from uracil that had an earth origin right okay so eh, yeah okay it's suggestive it's not conclusive Mm-hmm. Obviously, this right. method can never really be a slam dunk. To really resolve this issue, we need to go probe some asteroids, which luckily has been happening. Yay! Yeah. <laughs> That's this was really a Japanese cool. team that, um, that published this study recently, and a Japanese probe actually sampled an asteroid and came back to Earth in 2020, and the samples are being tested, so results may be coming soonish. And a NASA probe is expected to return in September 2023 from a different asteroid. Um, And just to be clear, asteroids, when they fall to Earth, become meteorites. So that's the connection. Um, Yeah, so um, we may find out more soon. But, you know, life could have sort of come from outer space, or at least part of the chemical components of life. Mm -hmm. That's so cool, cool. though. Ah. Yeah. I love new things being discovered. I know. Plus that's space why is we cool. do this. That's true. That is why we do this. Yeah, that's what I have, uh, have on that for you guys today. We'll put a note in the file that uh, you will be doing an update on this one uh, in the future mm-hmm. when we get samples back because I'm excited to hear what they find out. I want to yeah. know. Yes. All right. All right. Well, that's it for today. Thanks, everyone. Great talking to you. See you next week. See ya. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com, 
Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.